Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one nearby you. They're um, under the seats uh, near you. And Mark chapter 10, our text will be on page 846 of those Bibles. Jesus' teaching, we'll see here, is radical, as it often is. But I can't think of anything more important for our culture than what we'll see this morning. What Jesus says in our text is countercultural to every culture, and it's because it challenges the inclination of every person's heart, and cultures are just made up of the collective expression of human hearts that get together. So it's one of the most significant answers to our deepest problems. So the greatest concerns in our culture are symptoms of the problem that Jesus addresses right here. So we see leaders in our culture abusing and misusing their power. We hear the Me Too movement identify how men have used and abused their power over women in horrific ways. We grieve of the abuse and violence in marriages and homes. We've seen pastors blow up their ministries because of harsh leadership, leaving wreckage in its wake. We see workplaces with cultures of fear because bosses are bullies. We see some politicians grasping for more power to control more people according to their own agendas. We see many Christians display a kind of spiritual pride. They grasp the truth and then they critically judge everyone else who doesn't see it like them yet. So what is going on? What is missing in all of this, and what is the solution? Humility. Humility may be the missing virtue in our lives and culture today. And yet, according to Jesus, humility is to be the primary posture of his people. The gospel, the message of God's forgiveness and eternal hope to sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this message is intended to create in those who believe it a new posture of humility. And so when we know Jesus, we become like him. And this means that we'll grow in humility. To the degree that we know him and are becoming like him, we will become like him in his humility. The people who are humble have a different atmosphere around them. Have you noticed that? They lead differently. They work differently. They parent differently. They engage in the ordinary moments of life differently. Here's another way to put it. Every single one of us wants to be significant, but we do not understand true significance. We define greatness in terms of various categories of success and power and approval, but Jesus shows us that true greatness, true significance is found through humble service. So let's read Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road or the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the disciples, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Verse 36, he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our Father, we receive your word and we depend on you now to do the things that only you can do in working in our affections. We pray that you'd expose to our own selves our motives Give us self-awareness, and through that grant us repentance and renewed faith to become like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. So here Jesus is calling us to embrace a redefinition of true greatness. According to Jesus, here's what true greatness is. Here's what true significance is. Humble service. And this text leads us to embrace this vision of true greatness as humble service in three steps. He teaches the principle, he embodies the pattern, and then we'll consider how he also is the one by his spirit who empowers the practice of this. So let's walk through this together. First, Jesus teaches the principle. So the principle is that true greatness is humble service. So James and John, two of his disciples, come up to Jesus here, and they ask him a question in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask of you, I'm sure they think that's clever, right? My boys have said to me, promise that you'll say yes to what we ask you right now, right? And if I did that, <clears throat> my boys would have Bugattis and McLarens by now. I guess if I had the means to make that happen for them. But Jesus is uh, asking for specifics first, understandably. So what do they want before he commits? Well, they ask him for places of significance, in his kingdom, in his glory. Look at verse 37. This is their request. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. John Stott noted that this would be the world record for the world's worst prayer request ever. <laughs> so they're on their way to Jerusalem. They keep misunderstanding what Jesus says about his suffering and death. Jesus just said it again for the third time very clearly. They don't get it. 
But they know something's going down in Jerusalem. They've just identified him as the king. So what's going to happen in the city of the great king? Kingdom's going to be established in some form. And so they are calling shotgun, locking in the most honorable seats. They want places in glory. So what's motivating them? They want to be great. They want to be seen as significant. They want to be first, and they want to be famous. And notice, they aren't asking for Jesus' throne. Right? They're fine with Jesus being king, but they want to make sure that when people see Jesus, they also see them. They want to make sure that when Jesus has influence, they get some influence. They want to make sure that when Jesus reveals his glory, they get to radiate some of that as well. Do you see how subtle that is? They want to become great as Jesus becomes great. They're using Jesus here to advance their own reputation. This shows us that we can use Jesus. We can use aspects of following Jesus, being a Christian, for the sake of getting a better reputation. A pastor can preach about Jesus' glory really just to show how great he is. You can lead a Bible study about Jesus, but your hope is really to show how smart you are. Your text says, look how great Jesus is, and your subtext is, look how great I am, showing you how great Jesus is. Temptation of anyone doing what I'm doing right here. You can lead publicly in Christian ways, and the text that you're presenting is, uh, aren't we all so great about how, or happy about how great Jesus is? And under there, you're really hoping that they see that you're seated by Jesus' glory right now, that you're getting a bit of that as well. You're significant for showing how great and significant Jesus is. So how does Jesus respond to this? Since he always can see people's motives. Well, we'll come back to his response in a minute, but essentially Jesus says this, you want to sit with me in glory? You have no idea what you're asking. You don't understand true greatness. True greatness, Jesus says, is seen at the cross, where I'm headed. It's about sacrificial service. It's about humble service. So Jesus says all of this kind of cryptically here about the cup and the baptism. He's referring to the cross in these ways. We'll come back to it in a minute. The disciples completely miss it, as usual. But now, other disciples hear about this request that James and John make. And how do they respond? They're indignant in verse 41. Why? Because they want the same things. They're just mad that James and John asked first. They all have the same heart orientation. Sometimes, this is what this shows us, sometimes self-centered glory-seeking looks obvious to everyone like with John and James. But other times, it's less obvious, like these other disciples. So in other words, it's not just the boasting of the famous, but the criticisms of the overlooked that's coming from the same heart orientation. Pride can be stoked when you're chosen first, and it can be wounded when you're chosen last. Envy is what pride looks like when someone else has the honor you want. Self-pity is what pride looks like when you're overlooked, but you think you should have been put forward. So, this is not just a problem for the successful, is it? 
It's a problem of the human heart. So now Jesus redefines true greatness for them. And he defines it as humble service. He does this by contrasting two visions of leadership. He summarizes their culture's view, and he says, but it shall not be so among you. And then he gives the alternative. He's saying, look at how your culture views greatness. And then he says, if you want to follow me, you can't be that way. You have to have a completely different vision of greatness and significance. So here's the contrast. He says that the leaders of their age seek to use their authority and influence and power to dominate and control for their own selfish agendas. This is verse 42. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So their leaders are using people to serve themselves. They seek power to control people. And then Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. And he gives his vision in verse 43 and 44. He says, whoever would be great among you, right? That's what they're asking. We want to be great. James and John are saying we want to be great. The rest of them are feeling a bit offended that they didn't get the opportunity. He says, who wants to be great? You must, they must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In other words, if you want to be significant, you have to become a servant. If you want to be first, you have to make yourself last. That's the principle. True greatness is humble service. Now, second, Jesus embodies the pattern of this. So Jesus calls his disciples and everyone who wants to follow him, all of us, to this vision because it's what he himself came to embody. Look at verse 45. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We get a sense of what Jesus is saying here by recognizing that he's bringing together two Old Testament prophecies to explain how he embodies this vision of true greatness. One's from Daniel 7, and the other's from Isaiah 53. So Daniel 7 is a prophecy about a coming king referred to as the Son of Man. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's actually not just using a phrase to refer to him being a human being. It's actually referring to this coming king from Daniel 7 who's going to receive all authority over all nations. That's what this coming Son of Man would do, rule over humanity. But then Jesus also meshes that prophecy from Daniel 7 with Isaiah 53, which speaks of one who will come who's called a servant who will give his life for many. He will give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the payment given to set a prisoner or a slave in that context free. Theologians summarize what Jesus is referring to here as substitutionary atonement. Jesus is offering himself as a substitution, a sacrifice, to pay the price for the sins of those who are condemned. This is the heart and meaning of the cross. Jesus died as a substitute to atone for our sins. And Jesus is bringing both of these promises together in one person, namely himself. So the Son of Man receives honor and glory, exalted, enthroned. The servant gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying he's come to do both. And this is at the heart of the meaning of the cross. 
If you want to become a Christian and follow Jesus, this is your first step. It's recognizing who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus is the king of creation, and yet he also came to die in our place. He was crucified to pay the ransom for our sins, to pay the price that our sins deserve, to bear the wrath of God in our place. So we trust him then as the one who humbly came to serve us in this way. We receive his forgiveness and we're welcomed into his friendship. We receive his ransom payment on our behalf. But here's what's amazing about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that, yes, that's your first step is to embrace him as your Savior, but to follow him means you actually follow his example in this very way of living. He's saying that this is the example of the life he's calling us to live, that true greatness is humble service, and it's not just what he did. It's now what he invites all who follow him to do. So, Here's the point then. The cross is not just the means for our salvation. It's the model for our sanctification, right? our becoming like Jesus in life. In other words, it's not just the way we get forgiveness. It becomes a way of life for us. The cross isn't just about the payment for our sins. It's then the pattern for our whole lives, which means that the cross itself, Jesus is saying, is the epitome of the vision of true greatness that Jesus has come to teach. So this is the point of what he sort of cryptically said to James and John in verses 38 to 40. So Jesus is saying that the cross is where true greatness and glory is seen. So let's look at verses 38 to 40 and listen closely to three things uh, Jesus says here. First, when they ask Jesus to sit with him in his, you see the word they used? Glory. That's the topic of conversation. Jesus, when you show your glory, we want to sit with you. And notice what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. They're asking for glory. Jesus doesn't say, don't ask for glory. He's saying, I know what you mean when you think about when I will reveal my glory. You don't understand what it will be like when I reveal my glory. He doesn't say, why are you thinking about glory? He doesn't change the subject. He's just saying true glory isn't what you think it is. Well, what is it then? We'll notice the second thing. He brings the, in, these, in these metaphors of the cup and baptism. Look what he says in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you? So they're like, we want glory. We want to be with you in your glory. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'll be baptized? The cup is a metaphor from the Old Testament often re referred to, uh, referring to suffering. And in particular, the suffering of God's wrath against sin as well. So it's the image of judgment poured out on people like a cup pouring out wine. So more broadly suffering in general, and then we'll see with Jesus, it's a particular kind of suffering, the suffering of God's wrath. And the word baptism means most broadly to immerse or to overwhelm. This is why we use it to refer to water baptism, being immersed or plunged into water. But most broadly, it's an image of immersion, and it can be an image of judgment. So being plunged under the waters of God's 
judgment. So Jesus is using these images to refer to the cross. It's the place where he drinks down the cup of God's wrath to its dregs for us. It's the place where he is plunged under the waters of judgment for us, which is part of the reason why when you become a Christian, your first act of obedience Jesus calls you to is to be baptized because you're identifying with Jesus saying, Jesus was plunged under the waters of God's judgment, so I don't have to be. I'm identified with him. When he was plunged under, I was plunged under. So now we do this symbolically to say we've died and we rose. We've been judged already in Jesus. There's nothing left for us. So side note, if you are following Jesus, you've begun to follow Jesus, and you've not yet been baptized, we invite you and Jesus commands you to do that as a way of celebrating your union with him and being being associated and united with him in his death. There's a third connection to the cross here, and this one is more subtle. Uh, And I'll just say, I think this is going on here. Mark's being intentional here. Not positive, though. Uh, But notice, they ask to sit at his right and his left in glory. Jesus starts talking about the cross, right? He says in verse 40, then, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. So he actually does say, you will drink the cup and be baptized. In other words, you don't quite know what's coming for you, but as you follow me, you will suffer. Um, and, And both of them did, and we see in the book of Acts and beyond. But then he says, but specifically, as we're redefining glory here at the cross, to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's prepared. There's one other time we hear about people being at Jesus's right and his left, and it's at the cross in Mark 15, 27. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one at his left. Now, I'm just convinced Mark is so careful with his words, as if you've been with us week after week. You've seen he's really careful, very subtle. Uh, He rewards close reading and repeated reading. And even when we get to Mark 15, we're going to see that the way that Mark presents Jesus' crucifixion is as though Jesus is being coronated. There's irony all over the place. He's mocked as a king. He's robed as a king. He's wearing a crown like a king. And the cross was viewed in some circumstances as this kind of throne. Jesus is lifted up, enthroned as king, because that's where he conquers sin and death and Satan and accomplishes his great victory with his cross and resurrection for us. And there we see him in his glory. And there is someone that is right and his left. And so what is his glory? It's the display of who he is and his beauty, his moral beauty. It's the display of his love and his wisdom and his justice. And that's where we see those things displayed. It's at the cross. The cross is the greatest act of self-sacrifice in human history, where the Son of God himself gives his life on behalf of his people to rescue us from eternal death. So that's the display of his greatness and glory. So the disciples are asking to have places beside him in his glory, and Jesus starts talking about the cross. You know, it's amazing. Jesus is saying something here that no one not only wouldn't have said, but wouldn't have even thought to say or think at any point in human history before. In the Roman world, the whole point of a crucifixion was public shame. They hung naked, bleeding, suffocating 
It wasn't mentioned even in polite company. And Jesus says, the world's greatest display of shame is about to become history's greatest display and revelation of glory. Because he's going to die for us. It's where we see God himself in Christ serving us in humility and love. And Jesus is saying, and it's also the life I'm calling you to live. This is a picture of the Christian life. So here's the point of the text. You and I are not just called to be forgiven by Jesus or saved by him in that sense, but to become like him. We're called to follow his example in seeking true greatness through humble service. So Jesus teaches the principle, and then he embodies this pattern in his own life, and especially the cross. So now finally, he empowers the practice. Now, if we just stopped here, we might be despairing a bit because our hearts are all inclined towards self-glory, self-seeking glory, rather than others serving humility. So just hearing Jesus teach about humility and then showing that he's the greatest example of this isn't enough to change us. How do we actually change? Well, we actually need to change through uh, seeing by the Spirit's transforming work in our hearts, seeing His glory in the cross for us. Think about it. Jesus said that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. So if you receive this, if this, you actually get a sight of this and the Spirit changes you and open your eyes, your, opens your eyes to see it as glorious, what actually happens? Well, what are you saying about yourself if you receive Jesus as the one who died for you? Well, you're acknowledging that you need a ransom, right? You're acknowledging that your pride and its expression in your life warrant eternal death. In other words, you and I are so prideful and sinful that we needed God the Son to die for us and take God's wrath for us. So that is a humbling reality to acknowledge that we're so sinful we needed this. This is a pride killing. And yet, notice also, this isn't just humbling because it implies we need a Savior like this. It's also humbling because we recognize that Jesus is our ransom. Why did he become your ransom? Because he loves you. Because you're valuable to him. He's serving you. That He's saying this is why he came. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you receive him as your ransom, then you are learning that you were on his heart from eternity past. That itself is humbling as well. Knowing that you have all of this pride in you, and yet God himself had you on his heart to come and die for you. So we're humbled from an acknowledgement of our own sin, We're humbled by the beauty of his humility that is so different than us. And yet we're also humbled by his love that he would do that for us. And here's how that changes you as well. Because if we have his love like this, it means we already have all the approval we need, right? Why do we need it from other people like us that also need a ransom? What is their opinion? If we have the approval of God in Christ, then we don't need to seek 
glory from other people. The gospel kills our need to climb any ladder or find any glory elsewhere. So here's how Christian growth works. We behold Jesus' glory in the cross, and then we begin to reflect that glory as the Spirit humbles us and transforms us. We see Him humbly serve us, and then He transforms us to humbly serve others. So in light of this, I just want to wrap up by just making a connection to several aspects of life. Supplies to all people in all aspects of life. This isn't just for leaders, because Jesus, even when he challenges this vision of leadership in the culture of that time, he gives the opposite by saying what he's calling all of his people to show in their lives. So there's a lot to say in every one of these. I'll just be brief. I'll let you work it out. But this has implications for every moment of every life, every moment of your life, every person, every conversation you'll ever have can be changed by this. So uh, seven areas here. First, humility in the heart. So the heart is where humility has to begin. The issue with James and John isn't just their request, right? It's their deep desire for significance and how they're seeking it. So in order to change, we have to, we have, to have our convictions about true significance actually change, which means we need self-awareness. It means that we have to ask ourselves, why do I want the positions that I seek? Why does I want the position I have? Why do I want to keep it? Why am I indignant when someone else is chosen ahead of me? What, in other words, what really motivates why you do what you do? Why you say what you say? How you say what you say? Why you type on social media what you type and how you do it? It also means we don't just need self-awareness, but this should lead often to repentance and faith. So we need to repent of seeking our significance through self-exaltation, and we need to receive Jesus' humble death for us and his grace for us. So that's humility beginning in the heart. Second, humility in the home. It's Mother's Day. Let's start with mothers. I want to honor you in light of this text because our culture celebrates Mother's Day, but in many ways it devalues motherhood because it equates, our culture equates, just like the context of Jesus' day, it equates greatness most often with public power and reputation. And they miss then so much of the true greatness of motherhood and nurturing others, of humbly serving a child. So, but what you do in nurturing and caring for a child as a mother, and of course as a father as well here, through those moments when no one else may see it, that's true significance, and God sees it, and he honors you for it. And husbands, you're called to be the leaders in your home, but so often husbands lead with a backwards, upside-down vision of true greatness and leadership, and Christian husbands alike. They misuse or abuse their authority and leadership. They seek to lord it over their wives, like Jesus refers to here, but men Jesus shows us that we have to lead with humble service. That is how he's defining true leadership here. So we're not to walk into a home environment wondering how someone else can serve us, but how we can serve those in that home. We need to see how we 
seek to do this in both subtle and severe ways. So here's a few subtle examples. Do you hog the remote? <laughs> right? Whose preferences are you honoring? This is subtle, but it's directly connected. Because in that moment, are you seeking to honor yourself, thinking you're the great one in the room, or are you going to show true greatness and humbly serve someone else? That's the question you have to ask. Um, I mean, there's a lot of subtle examples. Do you ever, when you go out to eat, are you most often going to places that you want rather than where your wife would want to go? In other words, is the kind of the net summary of the times when you go out to eat basically thrown into the category of your preferences, or are you humbly serving your wife? In the car, what's the music you listen to? Is it usually yours, or do you humbly serve and honor the preferences of someone else you're with? Do you see the subtle ways? There's also, of course, severe ways that we need to not only acknowledge this, but repent of. Do you not just manage your family's finances, but do you seek to control them? Do you view the income earned as what you've earned, and therefore it's yours, or is this what God himself has blessed your family? Yes, through your means, but it's, it's what he's blessed your family with. Are you ever verbally or physically abusive? Do you belittle your wife, either to her or in front of her or behind her back? Do you make her feel worthless? If you do, this is anti-Christian, it's anti-cross, it's the opposite of glory, it's shameful, and it's satanic, and you need to repent. So Jesus' vision of humble service affects all of these subtle and severe realities. It also in the home applies to parents. Parents are entrusted by God to lead their homes, but we're not allowed to misuse our authority. So one of the best ways to parent with humility is to be the lead repenter in your home. Repent to your children when you are impatient or sin against them. Uh, apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Okay, third sphere. So humility in the heart and the home and now church leadership. Some of you have experienced, um, or people you know have experienced, pastors and church leaders who lacked humility. They were domineering and harsh. They created a culture of fear. In the past decade, we've seen public pastoral leadership roles and leaders blow up their ministries from self-serving pride. They were domineering. They didn't listen to advice. They abused their power with women and those who serve under them. And one of the reasons why this is so common is because we do not embrace Jesus' vision for true significance and greatness. We, uh, in general, can tend to value charisma over character. We value growing in numbers more than growing in character. If this leader can help us grow in numbers, more important than that leader growing in character or helping us grow in character. We decide to follow people and social media and in other ways just based upon how many other people are following them, which is why there's something wrong if the first question that a pastor is asked is how big their church is because it's just coming from the complete wrong value system. The way forward is Jesus' clear but challenging vision of humble service. So we just have to all settle it that humility is a non 
negotiable for church leadership. Skill and competency are, of course, important, but humility is a non-negotiable. One of my mentors made this point in the way that he trained me for ministry. I think I showed this a few years back. Part of my pastoral apprenticeship, uh, he had me memorize this text and clean the bathrooms of the church for a summer. And so I still remember just pushing the cart, bathroom to bathroom, memorizing this text. And when I wasn't memorizing the text, listening to Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. <laughs> so if you want to ch- pursue church leadership at any level, elder, deacon, staff, ministry leader, small group leader, um, you've got to settle it, that this is a non-negotiable for you as well. So I encourage you to memorize verses 42 to 45. And I'd also encourage you to read a book, um, Jack Miller's book, titled C. John Miller, The Heart of a Servant Leader. Uh, one of my most marked up, worn books sitting over the, on the chair um, over there, if you want to look at it. Um, it's just letters from a pastor and uh, two other people. And it just he has an atmosphere of humility um, about him, and it gives this vision of true greatness. All right, briefly, a few more. Fourth, humility in the church culture. Every church is called to cultivate a gospel culture of humility, we could say. It's a culture that reflects Jesus's humble service. So here's how you know if you're cultivating this culture in a church. You see that people are quick to honor, and they're slow to seek honor. People are easily edified, right? Easily encouraged and slower to criticize. Uh, After a sermon, people are more focused on how to personally respond to God's Word than to comment on the style of the one presenting God's Word. People celebrate one another's successes. They cheer for one another. They don't mind being overlooked if it means someone else is honored. People are quick to serve and responsive to needs when they're presented to one another, either interpersonally or as a church when we ask for a volunteer need. And they don't need a title. They're happy to do it anonymously. I'm reminded of how so many of you set the pace in this Um, in various ways, serving behind the scenes, some of you for decades, some of you you in ways where maybe you've you've even thought, I don't think anyone has thanked me um, because people don't often see it. Just one reason why, you know, we have the mantra, see a deacon, thank a deacon, right? And that just goes to anyone. You see a servant, thank a servant, Um, because that's what we're called to do. Humility, fifth, in the workplace. Some of you have experienced bosses that are harsh. They have a domineering presence. They rule by fear. The culture of the workplace is kind of marked by fear because they criticize rather than encourage. They do weird manipulative power plays. They don't even realize come across as weird, but you see it. Like, what is going on there, right? This kind of power-seeking moves they have. But Jesus' vision of leadership is humble service. So this doesn't mean that if you're a boss, you, sh- boss, you should be kind of frothy, flimsy, indecisive. Jesus was strong, convictional, decisive, but he was humble, and he was kind. So you cultivate a culture of kindness on your team. You use your power to bless Regarding work in general, if you have a job, this vision calls you to see your job as a way not mainly to climb a ladder, be successful from someone else's standards and get approval from people, but to serve. So use your job as a way to serve. Think through, how is it that what I'm doing 
is a means to serve. And this may take some creativity. I worked for a while in a factory. I worked online making uh, refrigerators, and in, per in particular those top-loading refrigerators. And so I was responsible for the inside part, doing some soldering and stapling and making it all work well. And I remember I just needed to have in my mind um, that a lot of these top-loading refrigerators were used in schools so that kids could reach in there and get their milk cartons. That's who I was serving. Day in and day out, I'm serving these future kids, grabbing their milk out of this refrigerator. So it may take some work, but that's what should drive us um, as we um, work. So students, as you think about your future vocation, consider how your gifts and desires can be used to serve people. Don't think first what job will make the most money or get the most approval, um, but how, will, how are you made and how can you bless people? That's the good life anyway. So many people pursue a career for money or power or influence, and they wake up someday miserable anyway. It's no way to be happy. Six, humility and cultural engagement. Christians, uh, many have recently said character is important, but there seems to be an exception when we talk on social media about political things. Um, but the basis, on the basis of Jesus' words here and the entire vision of the New Testament, um, I would disagree with that. The fruit of the Spirit isn't optional or applied to just certain aspects of life or within church walls. We are to lead with courage and conviction, but also with humble service. And if we have this vision, this will, we'll have something to say in a way that can be heard on all the issues that matter today anyways. And this applies to the issues that are affected today anyways. So we want to speak about how humility is the way forward in cultural issues, and the way that we speak about them actually models humility. Here's what I mean. I mean, think about a couple of them. What is racism? Right At the core, uh, one of the core aspects of racism is ethnic pride. Right? It's thinking that someone is less than you because of their skin color or background or culture. But Jesus calls us to honor and serve those who are different than us. Jesus' vision undercuts racism. And then we want to model humility in how we talk about humility is the answer. What is the sanctity of human life about? It's about honoring and protecting those who are most vulnerable in our culture. And who are those? They're those who are in a womb. So we honor and protect them by humbly serving them and seeking to protect them, which of course means we then honor the life of those in the womb and we care for them and those who are in hard life situations who need to raise and care for them. So we serve women in those situations. We also call out men who pressure women to get abortions. Um, creating vulnerable situations, both for the baby and the woman. So humility is what's needed to answer the problem of our culture with sanctity of life in the first place. And so we want to speak about that. And then we want to model, even as the way we speak about it, clarity and conviction, but also compassion and humility, even as we do this. Finally, humility in ordinary moments. So this is my way of saying the last point applies to everything um, because as you go about your day, view every moment as an opportunity to display the glory of Christ and the true significance of humble service. Let people go ahead of you in the grocery line. Do it in such a way where you don't just stand there even and say, oh, no, no, you can go first. Do it anonymously, which means just slow down as you're walking so they don't even know that you're letting them go first right? Only the Lord knows. You just, I mean, there's one little example 
of honoring someone else. When you walk into a room, don't, prioritizing, don't prioritize networking and meeting the great people in that room. Look for the lonely person. Extend the welcome of Jesus to them. Students, when you're playing sports, don't boast of your greatness and gloat in victory. Enjoy winning, but also enjoy, like really enjoy honoring one another. If you want an example of that, watch David Robinson's Hall of Fame speech from several years back. And parents on the sidelines of the games, go ahead and celebrate goals and assists. But more importantly, honor your kids when they honor others. Say, I am proud of you and how you honored your teammate for what they did. When you live with humility, what will happen is the atmosphere around you will change. People may not be able to put their finger on it, but they will sense it because it's just exuding from you. They will detect it. But if you talk too much and interrupt people and always are expressing your opinion first in all the ways that we do these things, it gives a different tone and it's not humility. So in all of us, let's remember that to get this way, rewinding 10 minutes here, we see the glory of Jesus serving us who died as a ransom for us in all the ways we fail to do this. And he loves us and he embraces us and he's making us like him by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would surprise us with how you can radically change us to become like Jesus. We also thank you for all the millions of ways that you have worked in our lives in the lives of people in this room to make us more like Jesus over time. We honor you for that. We thank you for it. And we receive what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.